Last week, we started a new sermon series through the book of Acts called Church Alive. And last week, we learned that the church comes alive. The church comes to life through the life-giving presence of the Spirit of God that's at work in and through individuals in God's church, but also in and through the life of the church through those individuals. And God brings this church alive by the power, by the presence of the person of the Holy Spirit. God brings his church to life. And this kind of life that's initiated by the Spirit of God, that's empowered by the Spirit of God, that's only brought by the Spirit of God, listen to me, it can't be imitated. You can't make it up. It can't be contrived. It can't be manufactured. It doesn't matter how loud you raise your voice or, or sort of what kind of strange things you do. It doesn't matter what kind of natural charisma you have or don't have. Like, none of that matters. It cannot be contrived, manufactured, imitated. But listen, it can be cultivated. And the life of the Spirit can be stewarded and it can be nurtured among God's people as he breathes life into his people by his Spirit. And this week as we get going in this second week of the sermon series in the book of Acts, we're going to see that the life of church, it is, it is cultivated. It is stewarded. It is nurtured in part by the Spirit of God at work through its leaders. And this morning, we're going to see four ways that the life of the church is nurtured through its leaders. And as we look at these four things, what, what you're going to realize is these are four things that you should expect from your leaders. These are four things that you should expect from your leaders in this church as the Spirit of God nurtures the life of his church through his leaders. This is the kind of thing that you should expect if, if, you, if you move someday or you move on someday, you find yourself in another local church. The leaders in that church should nurture the church in part in these four ways. But I also want to tell you, as you hear these four things this morning, I want to tell you, you should hear these things expecting that these are the kind of leaders that you all will become. Like this is the kind of leader that you're going to become in your home or, or in this church or in a church community or in your community for the sake of the kingdom of God and the king himself. These are the kinds of leaders that by God's grace we will all become a bit more and more each day until Christ, the leader of all leaders, returns. And I think we see the first characteristic here in verses 12 and 13. Would you look at verse 12 with me? I know we covered this a bit last week. I've been doing a little overlap. There's a reason for that. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of, called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Here, I believe we begin to see that the life of the church is nurtured through united leaders. The life of the church is nurtured through united leaders. Now, I believe that Luke mentions the upper room in part because this was a place that, that the leaders of God's church up till this point, of God's people up to this point, through and next to and with Jesus, this is the place they all gathered often. This is likely the upper room that they often gathered for many significant moments. And I believe Luke is, is, is pulling it out in part for that reason, to say, look, this is where God's people gather. And when God's people gather together in a certain place, there are significant moments in those places that mark the people of God and unite the people of God. 
And so they show up there in the upper room, and, and they are united in this place in an amazing way. This week in chapter 1, I'm going to see next week in chapter 2 especially. And maybe you can think about that in the life of our own church. You know, I, when I thought about this, I thought, I thought about this place. And I thought about how thankful I am that in this last season, we have had a place to gather. I met this week with pastors who have not had a place to gather. Maybe, maybe you don't know, but we're actually hosting a, a new church now here, gathering here on Sunday afternoons because they don't have a place to gather because the school district is giving them a week-to-week -week lease. Now, you can lease this place week to week, you know. And, and we're, so, we're so grateful that we have a space that we can, we can invite them into. And, and, and I, I thought about June 6, 2020, when we all gathered outside for the first time since people were gathering, and I think we were the first, or one of the first churches to gather, and we said, we're going to gather, and so we gathered outside, and, and, and I saw people come up weeping that they, were, that they were coming and celebrating, they got to gather. God marked us and united us in a way as a people. I also thought about June 7th, 2021, when by accident the week before, we had to come inside and meet, and then here we were, you know, like meeting together again and gathering, and, and, and the joy of God's people hearing the voices reverberate off the walls, and I thought it was a moment that marked and united our church. People have all kinds of thoughts about what's gone on over the last year, but here we all are together. Think about moments down at the men's advance or the moments at the women's retreats, which will come again by God's grace, and the moments that God marks his people, you get the point. There are those kind of moments in the life of the church, and I hope you notice them. God uses them to unite his people. But there's a lot more than that that's going on here, I believe. Because here, Luke, what he does is he, he repeats a list of apostles that he already listed in Luke chapter 6. You can see them up on the screen together. They're, they're kind of side by side, and we see all this very diverse group of disciples or apostles. We see Peter and Andrew, who are just like religious, blue-collar, small business owners. We see James and John, who are more like this sort of religious, white-collar, kind of upper-middle class. I think they had a whole fleet of ships. Maybe their business grew a bit, caught a lot of fish. There's Philip, he's a Jew, but for some reason he's known by his Greek name. Something's going on with him. He's a bit different than the others. We've got Nathaniel or Bartholomew who, who, who says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe he struggles with prejudice somehow toward the lower class Jews in his area. We've got Matthew who's a tax collector, who's like a crooked IRS agent, you know. Bad dude, no one likes him. They got Thomas, he's like a religious doubter. He's the person that's part of the church that's always doubting. There's James the Lesser. We don't really know much about him. Like he, maybe he's friends with everyone, but no one really notices him. He's kind of in the background a bit. We've got Simon the Zealot, who everyone notices because he's a religious, violent religious zealot. <laughs> there he is. We've got Judas, the son of James, who we know as Jude. He seems to be this guy who just has a heart for all kinds of people in the world, more of a globalist in his mindset, you know, and, I mean, these are really different guys. But as different as they all are, they had one thing in common. In Luke chapter 6, it says, And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. And apostles were eyewitnesses of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And they were called to be witnesses to those things in some pretty special and extraordinary ways. These men were very different, but can you, can you see in the highlighted words what united them? 
What united them was their experience of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. What united all of these different men was the reality of the gospel. And a church that is alive is a church who has leaders that are united around the truths of the gospel. Now, I'm not going, going to go into the list of how different all of our elders are and how tall or short or, you know, old or young or, you know, where they grew up or whatever. But I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of backgrounds. If you see us, you might think they're not a very diverse group of guys. And I can just tell you, if you know your pastors, you know, you know that's not true. You know that, that we come from different backgrounds and we have different histories and different families and different jobs and different perspectives on some things. But I'm standing up front and you to tell you right now that we, we don't see this differently. I want you to know that your pastors are united around the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that will never change in this church. The question is, will you allow the gospel to be the thing that unites the different people, the different partners at the Village Church? As we move into the season ahead, this is going to be the thing that unites us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where your leaders, by God's grace, will lead you. There's a second way the church can be nurtured through its leaders. I think we see it in verse 14 where it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think the second thing we see really clearly is the life of the church is nurtured through prayerful leaders, right? Is that obvious? The life of the church is nurtured through prayerful leaders. And when we look at the book of Acts, and as we begin here in chapter 1, what we're going to see is that every major event, every major event in the book of Acts, it either includes or it is surrounded by prayer. And that begins right here in chapter 1. And I believe this says something about the kinds of leaders who led through all of these moments, all of these events. There's really five characteristics of the prayer of these early Christian leaders. And if you're taking notes, you might want to jot those things down. The first one is it's united prayer. Did you see that? They were with one accord. They were all praying the same things. This word one accord, it literally is a musical word. It's like a, a symphony word where we get the word symphony or harmonize and that sort of thing. Like when you hear beautiful voices from the stage harmonize and it all is different, but it all kind of just goes together in the same direction. That's what this is talking about. There was a united kind of prayer that they had. They were all praying for the same two things, for the spirit of God to come and empower them and for God to raise up another leader to replace Judas. They were united around these things. And Village Church, we always have things that we can be united praying about together. We, we, we want to grow and multiply disciples who are delighting in Jesus and declaring the good news about Jesus and displaying the life of Jesus. And if you're ever at a loss as to what to pray for our church family, we can all be united in praying those things. That at this church, disciples would be grown and disciples would be multiplied. And that we would be the kind of disciples that would be delighting in Jesus, having joy in him. Pray those things all the time and we'll be united. Pray that we'll be a people that declares the good news about Jesus. And then our lives display or show something about who he is. If you pray those things, we will always all be united in our prayers. There are things that can unite all of us in our prayers. But it was also devoted prayer. It says they were devoting themselves to prayer. This word devoted means that they were constantly or consistently, continually praying these same things. And I got to tell you that I could speak for our pastors as one of our pastors. Like they, they're always continually praying these things. 
whether it's in our elder gathering that's going to happen this Monday, tomorrow we'll all gather for our monthly meeting, or whether it's the, the first, you know, the, the other Mondays where we gather for a sort of Zoom sync for 45 minutes and, and we talk about these things together and we pray together. This past Monday, we were actually on a call with Pastor Aaron in Vermont, and we dedicated all of our time just to hearing from him and listening to him and praying for and with him. These things happen in our staff gatherings, when our staff gathers. This happens when our community group leaders gather for training. This happens at community group. This happens in our prayer gatherings that before COVID happened here on Wednesday evenings. This happens on Sunday morning. We want to be a people that are devoted to prayer. It's devoted prayer. It's scripturally grounded prayer. I mean, here it says, for it is written in the book of the Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell on it and let another take his place. Like Peter is grounding his prayer in Psalm 69 and in Psalm 109. Peter knows the scriptures and he's grounding his prayers in the scriptures. And so are God's people. His prayers were grounded in scriptures and there's no reason to think that the other prayers surrounding the other events in the book of Acts were not. It's more logical to think that this was their habit. It was, here's the controversial one. Just wait for it. Take a deep breath. It was male-led prayer. It was male-led prayer. The men led the prayer. And these together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. It was a prayer that was led by the men. And, and I just want to say, oftentimes the, the stereotype in a church can be that, that the women are the ones that are devoted to prayer. That when the women gather for their mom's gatherings, that they're the ones that are praying. And, and when they gather for Bible study, they're the ones that are praying. And the typical sort of stereotypical picture in the, in the church is that there are these women, and they are older women or very old women, and they are gathered together early in the morning or late at night together, and there's no one else there. And they are the ones that are praying for the church. Now, that said, I want to tell you, that's a beautiful picture. And I'm connected to pastors around our country, and I've talked to a couple recently who literally, their churches were failing. They were falling apart. And there was a committed group of small, committed group of older women who prayed that it wouldn't happen. And God used those women and their prayers to literally breathe new life into the life of the church. And I believe that's a beautiful thing. What I'm saying is this is the stereotypical picture, that the men are not present. And I just want to say, God forbid that that would ever be the picture at the village church. It's not the pictures that the men should be initiating these things and leading in these things. And I'm saying this to you as one of you. I and we should be doing this in our homes and in the life of this church, leading and taking initiative in prayer. And, and I believe that all of the women in this church would likely say, amen to that. That we want the men of this church and we want our men to lead us and initiate in these things. And we want to be leaders as men who are pastors in this church who would humbly and boldly lead in this way. I remember when I came to the village church, this was the picture. There were not a lot of men that I could find that were praying in this way in this church, in this kind of devoted kind of way. But there are some men who, who join me in praying on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I want to tell you, there are men like Mike Norris and Glenn Smith and Bob Osborne that they're still meeting in this church every Tuesday, every Thursday morning, praying for the life of this church. And I praise God for those men. I'm humbled to be alongside them. 
They're a great example to all of us. Lastly, it's expectant prayer. It says, show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostles from which Judas turned aside and go to, to go to his own place. They believed Jesus' first promise that his spirit would be sent. And they believed Jesus had already chosen another apostle to replace Judas. They just had to pray and he would answer their prayers. And they knew it. And so they prayed with expectancy. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is this, 1 John 5, 14 to 15. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever it is that we ask, we know that we have the things that we ask of him. And so if we are united in our prayers, and if we are grounding our prayers in Scripture, and if we have the men who are leading our church, leading us in those prayers, grounded in Scripture, humbly and boldly before God, and we're praying the things that God has already showed us that his, his revealed will, why would he not answer those prayers so we can pray with a kind of expectancy? Village Church, you should see your leaders praying that way. And, and can I ask you, please pray with expectancy as you ground your prayers in Scripture. You know, last week, um, we talked about this idea of evangelism and the Spirit of God sort of empowering us to go and be witnesses for Jesus. And, and I had a lot of people asking me questions about that and just confessing, like, I really rely on the powering of the Spirit to, like, help me interpret Scripture and do these other great things that you mentioned that are wonderful things, but I haven't really kind of gone to that primary thing of just empowering me to be a witness. I've been praying every day for the last three months or so through a, a list of things I'm praying for the Village Church, and one of them is evangelism, that we would become a church that would share Christ with other people and invite them in to the life of Christ and to the life of this church. And there's a community group that, unbeknownst to me, has been doing this. They have been talking to each other about about who, who they can share the gospel with and that God would empower them by his spirit to do it. And they've been going out and they've been doing it. And then like, we're gonna come back and we're gonna, we're gonna talk about who'd you share the gospel with? Share the gospel with at least one person through the week. And we're gonna pray for each other and ask God for those opportunities. And they're doing it. It's just amazing. If you ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And, and this week for me, it was, it was a beautiful picture for my, myself, my own personal life, not just as one of your pastors, but as a Christian, just to say, I'm praying these things, and they're actually happening. Go figure that. <laughs> this is happening. Praise God for that. The leaders want to lead you through prayer. Will you joyfully join in that with a sense of expectation? Well, listen, there's a third way the church can be nurtured through its leaders. It starts in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was all about 120. And said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. He goes on to say, for it is written in the book of the Psalms, may this camp become desolate, let there, no, be, let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his place. We've talked about this a little bit already, but I think it's worth mentioning here as its point on its own is that the life of the church is nurtured through scripturally attuned leaders. A church that's alive always has leaders who are asking this question, what does the scripture say about that? And who knows something about that? A church that's alive has leaders that are saying, what does the Bible say about that? 
Like, what does the Bible say about discipleship and the way that that should happen in the life of the church? What does the Bible say about community and how that should happen? What does the Bible say about church structure and how we govern ourselves and operate together as God's people? What does the church say about worship services and what should be included and how we do that together? I mean, they're, they're looking at a difficult, there's more difficult ones than that. They're looking at, what does the Bible say about what you do when one of your leaders betrays Jesus? <laughs> that's, that's what they're trying to figure out. But this question, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture say about that? It's meant to safeguard the authority of Scripture and the truth of the gospel. And, and for us, that, that's, those are high values. Biblical authority and gospel centrality out of our seven core values as a church, those are the two that are at the top of the list. And this is one of the greatest roles that leaders within the church have. And I believe it's needed today more than ever. A church that's alive is not, doesn't come alive because of its own intuition. And it doesn't become alive because of what other authors say or because of what podcasters say or other church leaders say. It doesn't come alive because of all the concepts that popular church culture seems to be floating out there in mainstream church culture. The church comes alive by the Spirit of God as we look to what Scripture says. Leaders in the church should not only be asking, what does Scripture say about this? But, but we should be asking one other question kind of, kind of further down than that is, what does the Scripture say about this that reveals something to us about who Jesus is? What does this say about the truth of the gospel and the reality of who Christ is? And this started for the apostles in Luke 24. I mean, before this, they had not seen Jesus clearly in all of Scripture. Can you relate to that? Was there a day when you opened the Bible and you, you just saw a bunch of lists or stories and you really didn't see Jesus very much there? But after Jesus opens their eyes, they see all this stuff. In Luke 24, after the resurrection, it says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Here in Luke 24, Jesus literally opens their mind to a Jesus-centered, gospel-centered way of seeing Scripture. And this is what we need today. We, we need this today. We, we see this in what happens here in Acts chapter 1. I mean, Peter picks up the scriptures that he would have known since he was a boy. He knew Psalm 69. He knew Psalm 109. And likely before this time, he just read it. Maybe he thought it pointed to Messiah in some way. He did not see Jesus any of this. And then he begins to see Jesus. And he begins to see the truth of the gospel wrapped up in these psalms that he's known his whole life. And Village Church, I want to tell you that the church is alive when it's nurtured by leaders who do this. Because this is the only thing that brings spiritual life. It's the only thing that brings spiritual vitality. Not just that we open the scriptures, but when we open the scriptures, we see Jesus in them and we see the truth of his gospel. If right now up in the children's ministry, our kids are opening up the story of Moses or David or Noah, or whoever the Old Testament character is, and if they're opening up the story and they're only reading a moralistic story about a character in the Bible that's going to do nothing for them. That's why Pastor Josh has picked a very Jesus-centered, gospel-oriented curriculum for our kids. Because our kids need this, but we need this. We need to see him in all of Scripture. 
There's no life in moralistic Bible stories. There's no life in a a moralistic list of of things to do and not to do. If we just see it as a way of developing our our kind of character in some way, that's great, but but that's not going to get us to where we need to be. We need to see what that list shows us about the character of Jesus, about his nature, about who he is, and how we can be a bit more like him. And there's only life in the truth of the gospel and the grace and the mercy that we receive through Christ. So then we can see these great stories and we can see these beautiful lists as things that point us to him and the truth of his gospel, his character, his nature. And leaders who steward or cultivate this, they're responsible to do this from one generation to the next. If you're following our scripture reading plan, Recently, we were in 2 Timothy, where Paul says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Which brings us to one last way the church can be nurtured through its leaders, and I think it starts in verse 21. So one of the men whom have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barnabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed. And they said, Lord, you know all the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I think the last thing we see here is that the life of the church is nurtured through new leaders. The life of the church is nurtured through new leaders. Listen to me, look at me. This is inevitable. And I'm not making any announcement right now. I'm just saying this is inevitable, that the church is going to need new leaders, always. The church will always need new and fresh and qualified and Jesus-centered, gospel-oriented leaders. It will always need new leaders, especially when so many of them want to go to Tennessee or Idaho or Texas or blah, blah, blah. Vermont. (laughs) From the very first leadership group among God's people, there was a need for a new leader. Not every leader is going to stay in it the whole time. Not every leader is going to stay with this group of God's people the whole time until Jesus returns. It's not going to happen. And in this case, unfortunately, it was a very hard reason. It was betrayal. The word could actually be translated act of treachery or infamy. They're trying to figure out, this guy committed an act of treachery against Jesus. How do we replace this guy? It doesn't have to be something like that. It could be that leaders are tired. You know, they're burned out. And if you think about Pastor Aaron and you love him, pray for him. You know, one of the things he said on our call this week was just like, I never realized how exhausting it would be to be a lead pastor kind of laughed a little bit, you know, like, you know, did one of those. I didn't. 
But he's doing such good work. And I can imagine sometimes he's very tired. You know, sometimes leaders get tired. Sometimes it's just a life circumstance. Something's going on with their family, their kids, their business, or something they have to kind of move on or step aside for a moment. We've had elders and pastors that have had to do that. Some of them do move away, and for good reasons we're not upset about. (laughs) We're, We're glad for them. And God needs to raise up new leaders. But listen to me, sometimes when this happens, what can happen is the people of God can, can begin to ask questions like, well, why did this leader move? You know, like, is it really because they want to move to that place or was there something going on here with them and the other leaders? Sometimes God's people can begin to not only question their leaders, like, is something going on wrong in this church culture or something like that? Like, I'm actually was on a call this week with another church in our network with a pastor who has a fellow elder that is really well known in their community and he did something that is horrible, you know, and everyone in the community knows, and their church is being crushed in some ways by it, you know, and how do you, how do you restore trust? How do you navigate something like that? What do you, how do you install new leaders? If people are wondering, like, what, are all your leaders like this? Sometimes people even begin to doubt Jesus. They begin to say, well, Lord, why would you let this happen? Why do you let this happen at our church? Why, why did this thing happen? Why did that, how in the world? And they begin to question him. And you can imagine that maybe the disciples were doing that here. And I don't have time to go into all of it this morning, but it's just a really beautiful picture. If you just want to look at just the issue of God's sovereignty in Acts chapter 1, and you just see that, that Peter just prays this incredible you know, prayer and, and centers them in Scripture and grounds them around the fact that, look, this had to happen this way. And Jesus himself said it had to happen this way to be fulfilled, to fulfill the Scriptures. God in his providence has it working out this way for some reason that's good. So how would you replace leaders? How would new leaders come into the life of God's church? Whether it was something really hard like betrayal or infamy, or if it's just like leaders tired and they need a break for their family. Like how would you raise up and, and find new leaders? And I think we actually find four things in here that I've told you a dozen times if you've been at the Village Church over a dozen years or more. And isn't it interesting the way these things always pop up? How would we make decisions? Four things. The church needs new leaders. How would they be chosen in a way that breeds confidence among God's people? First thing is we would look to God's word. We see that happening here in verse 20 where it says, Peter says, for it is written in the book of Psalms. He again grounds it all in God's word. We know what the Bible says about this. So they ground their decision in God's word. They ground it in Scripture. Scripture grounds us in what we already know to be God's heart and God's desires. And you as God's people should, should feel confident that when your leaders make decisions about things, things like appointing even new pastors or elders, that we're grounding those things in Scripture. It should bring confidence. Second thing is prayer. And then they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship. You know, prayer reminds us that God already has a will. And he just wants us to seek him and to seek his will. And we do that through prayer. Believers. We know why they were gathered there. About all the way back in verse 14, it says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the and mother of Jesus and all of his brothers. Like, like they were all there together. And Other believers who share the spirit of God with their leaders are kind of a safeguard to the decisions leaders make. In our process, when we put forward a new candidate to be a pastor and elder in our church, 
the elders raise up those other elders and pastors and they say, these are, this is the guy or these are the guys that we think should be some of our new leaders. And all of our partners have time, a month or more, to weigh in on that and to tell us, yes, we affirm these things or like, actually, I got some questions about this guy, you know. And you all, by God's grace, are a safeguard in some of those ways. And we trust God to speak through you. This started very early in the life of the church. And lastly, circumstance. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. I mean, this is maybe sort of strange, like rolling dice to make a decision, but, but this is a traditional way that the Jews determined God's will. They would roll the dice, and they would know that, like, hey, listen, we're grounding it in Scripture. We're praying about these things. We're united together at God's people. So they roll the dice, and they're like, we've already done all this, so we're going to roll the dice. You cast the lot, but the decision is from the Lord, the Bible says. And so they cast the lots, and they would believe that however it turned up, uh, God's in that. Like, we've done all the preparation and God's in it. So I just want to make clear, we don't roll dice anymore to do this. Yahtzee, you know, like it's, we, we, don't, we don't do this, okay? But we do evaluate the circumstances that are going on, the lives of the leaders in our church. We do look at these things. I want to close by telling you a fun story that a few years back, you know, four of our elders left all at the same time, and really not for bad reasons. They just moved away. And we're like, what are we going to do? That's like half our elder team. That's half of our pastors. And it was a really weird season. Um, but the blessing in that season was that we made a list at an elder meeting one night. And there was a list of 12 guys in our church. In our little church, there was a list of 12 guys that we believed were elder qualified men that could step into that role no problem. And God raised up four of them to replace the four pastors that had left. And God graced our church in that way. And I have full confidence that God will continue to do that in the days ahead. You know, every good and godly leader in any church is only looking to follow the example of the leaders of all leaders, right? Any good and godly leader just wants to be led more by Jesus so that he can lead more like Jesus, so that he can lead more to Jesus. Every, every good and godly pastor just wants to do that. Because Jesus is the ultimate united leader, right? I mean, the unity that Jesus shares with his Father and the Spirit in the Godhead, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is no more united leader than Jesus. Jesus is a prayerful leader. Jesus was constantly praying in his ministry, and although he was perfectly united with the Father, he, he approached the Father always in prayer. Jesus, fully God, fully man, like you and I. Approached the Father prayerfully, always, to affirm these things. Jesus was a scripturally attuned leader. He was always saying that the scripture might be fulfilled, as the scripture says, like the prophets say. He was a scripturally attuned leader, the most scripturally attuned leader, who said, I only do the things that my father tells me to do. I only say the things that my father tells me to say. The stuff that's already in there is what I do. You know what's interesting is that Jesus also has sent us a new leader. Now, new in a way, that Jesus promised that he would give us the spirit who would breathe life into the life of the church. And that as Jesus was telling his disciples that he would go away, he's like, no, 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 it's going to be fine. It's going to be actually better because now the Spirit is going to come and he's going to indwell all of you. 
And it's the spirit that comes from, from my Father. It's the spirit of Christ. The Bible refers to it those two ways, that the Holy Spirit of God indwells us. And now we have new-ish leadership, right? The spirit of Christ, totally, perfectly united with Christ. Jesus gives us himself by his spirit to continue to lead us in the days ahead. And Village Church, I believe that's the good news for you and I this morning, is that Jesus will lead us by his spirit, through his leaders, and to himself. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that you are the leader of all leaders. And I and we are humbled by your leadership. We're thankful for your leadership in our lives and in the life of this church. I thank you that this is a church that is alive because you have made yourself alive in and us. <laughs> all of us. Lord, we do want to be led more by you. And we do want to lead more like you. And we do want to, by your grace, lead people more to you. And so we look to you, we love you, we worship you, we respond to you now. And we do it in your name, Jesus, and for your sake. Amen.